This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Catherine Shaneberg. Catherine is the founder of the School of Images and has over 40 years' experience in adapting traditional practices into a modern medical context. She teaches workshops internationally and is the author of the book Kabbalah and the Power of Dreaming, as well as a new book and audio series from Sounds True called Dream Birth, Transforming the Journey of Childbirth Through Imagery. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Catherine and I spoke about the particular style of imagery she teaches, working with imagery to jolt sudden and spontaneous insight. We talked about how imagery is the language of the body and how we can learn to listen to what our body is telling us. Catherine also offered us a brief illustration of how she works with clients with imagery. And finally, we learned about the Kabbalistic lineage in which she's been trained and how her work with imagery applies to the journey through childbirth. Here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine Shainberg. Catherine, in your new book, Dream Birth, right at the beginning of the book, you make a pretty astonishing statement, and here it is. We are dreaming all the time, not just at night. And I thought that was so interesting. We're dreaming all the time? I'm dreaming right now, even as I ask you this question? You are, (laughs) and so am I. And so is everybody else who is alive, because... Dreaming is about experiencing. It's the brain that picks up experiencing. So I'm, I'm in a room. It's a little cold outside. I am experiencing the cold. The, uh, the, the light is a little dim. I'm experiencing that. All of this is a part of what comes into to me and is assimilated by my experiencing brain which is a much older brain than the uh, left, what we call vulgarly the left brain. So just to simplify, I'm going to talk about the right brain and the left brain, but of course it's much more complex than that. But in in the dreaming, in the right brain, we are picking up experience and we are responding to it inside of ourselves. When you are sleeping, your left brain is asleep, which makes it much easier for you to be seeing what's happening in your right brain. And so what's happening is a great flow of experiencing that is interactive, that is your body interacts with it. Your body itself is talking. So it's constantly talking to itself. 
and only the right brain is really picking up those messages. We're not privy to them unless we tap into our sub, what we would call the subconscious. Um, again, the subconscious is your quote-unquote right brain speaking. It's like a television screen, but in, in 3D dimensions. So yes, you're always dreaming. Night dreams are pop-ups in the flow of dreaming. And they're particular, it's like a, it's in the ancient world, it was called the cauldron. You actually do see that in uh, alchemical uh, uh, drawings, a man sitting in a great big pot with a fire underneath the pot, and he's cooking, <laughs> he's being cooked. The cauldron is the cauldron of experiencing. That's what your, your dreaming is about. And when you have a particular question, it's like fishing. It's like you take a, a fishing line and you throw it in a particular place of the lake, and at that place, the, the fish will pop up. It's that particular fish that pops up. So your night dream is the fish that pops up. But the lake is always there. The, the movement inside the lake, the life inside the lake, all of the information inside the lake is there. So that's why I say we're always dreaming. No, and I just want to clarify something. You said, you know, left brain, right brain, but of course that's too simplistic. Can you right. help me understand this in, in maybe not such a simplistic way, left brain, right brain? And the reason I say that is whenever anybody talks just about the left brain or the right brain, I, I've wondered to myself, is it really that cut and dried? And so maybe no, you could ex- expand that a little bit so I understand it a bit more. Well, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'd hate to do that. But the neocortex is your, your conscious brain. It's very large. It sits in the front of your your skull, and it's most of the the linear processes uh, happen in the neocortex. All the rest of the brain is involved with uh, uh, subconscious processes, and and the dreaming is also the dreams are uh, appear in the in that much larger, much more ancient brain. Um, uh, that's where the the exercising of the brain happens when you're dreaming. It's not in the neocortex. So that's what I mean. We would have to, you know, really look at the at the brain movements to be able to explain that. Um, it's in every dream book that you can find on a shelf. So uh, I won't go more into that. Okay, but this idea that when we go to sleep at night, this analytical part of our brain is finally quiet, our left brain, if you will, is finally quiet. So how in the midst of our daytime life can we experience that kind of quietude in our left brain? Well, I mean, I often explain it to people by talking about the sun and the moon. When the sun is out, you don't necessarily see the moon. Sometimes you see a pale reflection of it in the sky, but the moon is always there. So it's the same thing here, because you're busy thinking in a linear way. You're not looking at the screen inside of you that is showing you the images and the sensations that you're experiencing. Um, You're not looking at that. 
But you can learn to do that. It's very simple. In fact, um, you can do both at the same time. So that as I'm talking to you, I'm, I am... I can look into my my other screen and see all sorts of images rising inside of me. Now, we can train ourselves to do that. So let's say you go to a clairvoyant. The clairvoyant will be speaking to you about your life, but the way that that person is seeing your life is through, through images that are popping up in that person's mind. So... Let's say I have a student coming into my office. Um, I'm not a, I, I don't do clairvoyance, right? But I, it happens to me all the time. The student comes in and I suddenly see uh, uh, mice running all over the place. Why do I see mice? So I ask myself the question, why am I seeing mice when this person is walking into the room? Why do I see red? So I'm in constant contact with with my experiencing self that is reflecting back to me something that's happening in the room that we could call energetic, if you want. Now, if I think of, of the way that I always express it is that each one of us is a dream field. We are filled with images. We're made from images. Now, we could say that we are an energetic body that is a body made of light, a body made of vibration, and that then these vibrations take form. And let's say I've had a a very difficult relationship with my mother, so these experiences and these, these emotions come into me as images that are difficult. I carry these images with me. The person who is able to see their dreaming, whether in the nighttime or in the daytime, will pick up those images. We do that all the time. Let's say that you're walking into the office and suddenly you have a feeling of dread. You don't know where it comes from, but something in you leads you to go to the left and to meet this person in the left office. And... You ask this person, how are you doing? And the person says, well, terrible. I just found out that my mother's dying. And what led you to that? How did you read that? We can all do that. It's, we're really reading it through our dreaming. Now, generally, we associate that with a night dream. You go to sleep, you have a dream that so-and-so is in difficulty. In the morning, you go to the left office and you say to the person, I had a dream that they're you were having some difficulty. And the person says, yes, I've just found out my mother's dying. How come we can pick that up? So that's what I'm talking about. What I'm curious about is still how you can help people, and I know this is part of your work, at least it's my understanding, begin to access this dream field, this dreaming nature while we're awake. How can people start to do that? First, it's really to pay attention to your presence. So you're sitting somewhere, what are you feeling? Most people don't have time to feel. 
They will, if the pot is burning on the fire, then they'll have time to smell the burning and they'll run to the kitchen to take the pot off the fire. But they won't have, won't pick up the more subtle cues. So that's the first level. Um, if uh, somebody comes into my office and asks me how to do that, I'll close your eyes, breathe out three times, and we generally breathe out going backwards, three, two, one. Because we're, we're putting the body into a quiet space by doing that. And then um, you can ask something very simple. You're in a meadow, where's the sun? Is it to your right, to your left, in front, behind? The, the inner world is never going to lie if you do it very quickly, if you work very quickly that way. So the person will say, well, the sun is to the left. That tells me something has to be explored at the left. By doing that, we're awakening in the person that need to go exploring to the left or to the past in their life. <clears throat> and as they learn to do this work, um, it becomes much more alive in them. Those, those subtle cues become more present to them. They're going to see it more and more. Ultimately, they learn to be what I call dreamers, which is people who are constantly in touch with that aspect of themselves, which is a huge part of ourselves. Maybe, I, you know, percentages don't mean anything, but let's say 80% of ourselves is hidden to us unless through, through the dreaming. So I train them basically to become what I call dreamers. That is, people who are constantly in contact with their imaginal world as well as their rational world. So the two become balanced. They interact. Um, the more you do the, the work in the imagery, the more your left brain gets grounded because you're grounded in the experience of your your physical body it's strange to say and and people will ask me that that question how come we have to go into the physical body to really understand uh to really develop ourselves isn't that grounding ourselves too much shouldn't we be trying to um uh leave the physical body and it's quite the opposite. You have to go into the physical body and really explore it. That's your, that's your grounding, like a rocket needs the grounding of the earth to shoot up. So we need to do that. We go into our physical body and are experiencing now. And the more we do that, um, the more we develop what I call the dreaming. Now, the dreaming is not fantasy. It's something very, very concrete and, and very exact. So your dreaming body is never going to lie to you. There's an interesting quote from the book, dreaming is the language of the body. Can, right. Can you explain that? Yes. For example, if I tell you, close your eyes and imagine cut, cutting a... Uh, a lemon. 
What do you experience physically? Uh, I mean, I can feel it in my throat. Exactly. You can feel as if you're, you're tasting the lemon, right? Yep. Okay. That's, that's what's really, really important to understand, is that, that just an image can move your body. A, very, a precise image can do something precise in your body. So, remind me again of the question. I've kind of lost the question. We're, dream- we're dreaming together. Uh, dreaming is the, the language of the body, yeah. Yeah. So, by, by creating an imaginal image, I, I move my body. So, this is the language of the body. I can move anything I want. I can ch- move my heartbeats. I can move my blood. I can I can change uh, uh, a lot of, of muscular and much more more you know I can I can change the energy in my body I can affect cells in the body if I have the precise language I've just shown it to you let's say by using the lemon sure and I get the lemon example but I also have met people who have worked through healing crises and have used imagery to varying degrees of success. So what's your explanation when somebody uses imagery and they feel like they're sending a a message to their body, just like we did with the lemon, and the message is one of, you know, heal my cancer cells, and they see something or other, and it doesn't work? No, because it's not about positive, um, positive thinking. Most imagery out in, in, in uh, you know, in, in uh, the public is simple relaxation or positive thinking. What I'm talking about is something very different. It's very specific to the lineage I come from, and you'll see it in, in much, not all of the book exercises, but in many of the exercises in the book. It gives a little jolt. It, it, Force it, not it forces it jolts the imagination to move. It's not a relaxation. It 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 enables the uh, the body to start moving in a certain way. You you're surprised. There's a little surprise inside inside of you, and then the body will move. If it's um, a positive affirmation. It's very nice, but it's not going to make it move. You have to think of it in terms of poetry. If you read a poem, it's not going to make you move unless there's this little jolt that suddenly jumps you from one place to another. So you may be uh, smelling smelling a, a flower and suddenly you're in the stars. It's something in the language that has created that, that jump. And when you've had that jump inside of you, you're in an entirely different place. You're in a healing place, in fact. So let's say I'm walking down the street in my usual mode, and somebody comes around the corner, and I can't explain. It's some some movement. It's some something. My heart moves. I've fallen in love. I've changed from one state 
to a completely other state. This is what we need to obtain in the, in the work of imagery. This is the great power of imagery that is most often not understood. Now, Catherine, I, I wonder if you could, maybe you could just take us on a little adventure and we could have a little jolt experience now together, a little brief imagery practice of some kind in the way that you teach so people could experience what you're talking about. All right. So close your eyes and breathe out very, very slowly, seeing the number three. Breathe out the number two. Breathe out slowly and see the number one, tall, clear, and bright. And you imagine that you're walking into a rose garden. It's a beautiful day, and the roses are in bloom, and you walk around the rose garden, looking at all these roses and smelling the roses. Look around and choose the rose that attracts you the most. When you found the rose that attracts you the most, tell tell us what it looks like, Tammy. Uh, for me, it's uh, a big, dark red, like dark maroon, very full rose, and it has a beautiful scent that Good. I can smell. And how many does it have leaves? Yes. How many? Just two. Okay. Does it have thorns? Yes. And how many thorns? I'm going to say five. Okay. Now, breathing out, look into the scent of the rose. What color is it? I see like a black hole. Okay. And what do you feel when you see the black hole? A a sense of endlessly dropping in space. And are you, are you, uh, is it exciting or is it frightening? It's exciting. Okay, good. So now breathe out and jump into the rose and become the rose. Now what happens to you when you become the rose? Well, I definitely felt the jolt that you were describing when you said, Mm -hmm. become the rose. That was the jolt moment for me. Yes, it is. So tell us what what it feels like to be the rose. It feels wonderful. That doesn't tell me anything. What, What would tell me something is you describing your image, your sensations, your feeling. Well, I notice I'm feeling a little anxious about making the listener focus on me instead of their own experience. So I'm not going into too much detail, but maybe for the sake of example, it would be helpful. For the sake of example. I feel a sense of of spaciousness, big, endless, vast space. I feel very happy that the thorns are there to protect me. And I feel very open through the petals. Good. All right. And now breathe out and come out of the rose. Now you're standing next to the rose. What do you look like? 
I look like me again, but I'm in love with the rose. Are you dressed the same way? Is your hair the same color? Your expression, how is it? Uh, actually, I seem different. I seem like I'm in some, I have some type of like magical cloak on at this point. What color is the magical cloak? It has stars on it, and it's a deep reddish purple color. Okay, good. And your expression? I look quite happy. Good. Now look at the rose. What does it look like now? Well, now it's kind of become a little psychedelic. It's morphing and it's sort of alive and breathing and yeah. It's it's exciting, right? Yes. <laughs> Good. And breathing out, open your eyes. So, we've done a number of things, right? In a very short exercise of one or two minutes, right? Yeah. So generally, I don't explain, but everything in the image tells the truth about the inside of a person. And in some cases, let's say that somebody has jumped into the rose and has come out and looks beautiful, but the rose looks wilted, tells us something about that person and about that the difficulty of creating proper boundaries. So we water the rose. We are responding to the need of the image. It's very, very important in in this work to be responding to the necessity of the image because the image is both a diagnosis and a way forward. The more we respond to the image, the more it flourishes. It's like, you know, children, if you don't pay attention to them, they get uh, scruffy and and angry. If you pay attention to them, they flourish. If you wash them, if you take care of them, if you feed them well, they flourish. So it's the same with the inner images. And let's say that we were looking at an ovary, since the book is is on women and their reproductive uh, life. You look at an ovary, and I've had many women looking at their ovaries and saying, well, the, the, my right ovary has a shadow on it, or it's dark. The left one is clear, the right one is dark. So we respond to the necessity of that image by clearing the shadow, or by, by cleaning the ovary, or by massaging it, whatever it needs. And lo and behold, the body actually repairs itself. Because you're talking the language that the body understands. Um, This was a, a student I had who had just gotten married. But she had a real problem. She had too much testosterone. And so she had a lot of black hair growing on her body, and she actually had to shave every day. It was very shocking and difficult for her, right? So I gave her 
she wanted to become pregnant, and she had never in her whole life had a period. So I gave her an exercise to look at the ovaries. The ovaries were like hard stones. So the exercise was really to polish, to massage the ovaries every day, every day. Now, I was going away, so I left her with that one exercise. I came back four months later, and she was pregnant. So this was the only thing she did. And that was very important to know because it it allowed me to ascertain that it was the imagery that had done that, that she had actually... Um, talked to her body in ways that the body understood, dialogued with the body, and helped the body to recover. Now, Catherine, what's so interesting to me is I think most of the time, in my past at least, that I've heard people talk about imagery and working with imagery, it's I'm going to give you the image. I'm going to give you the image of your healthy ovaries, and you work with this image. But this jolt method of more dialoguing to see what comes forward is quite different. Yes, it is quite different. Now, let's say you tell me you have a glaucoma. Yeah. Because I know that if I give the body this particular image, the glaucoma, it's going to affect the eye in a certain way. I may do just that. But in most cases... I asked the, the the person to look in, to say what what they, they see. It's much more accurate because well, inner seeing is completely accurate. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. You mentioned that this work that you teach and that informs your writing comes from a particular lineage. Can you tell us a bit about that lineage? Yes. Um, I studied uh, with a woman in Jerusalem who was a French woman called Colette Aboulkermuska. She was considered one of the great uh, Kabbalists. one of the two Kabbalists in, in Israel at the time, two women Kabbalists. Um, they were mainly men, but... So she came from a lineage that was Sephardic, that is, the Mediterranean Jews, and they had started off in the south of France and Spain and then uh, emigrated to North Africa, to Algeria. Um, it was also part of my lineage because my, my mother's family came from exactly the same place. 
So um, when when we discovered each other, when I found her, um, I was I really found again my roots. But this is uh, it was a 12th century um, rabbi who was teaching the old systems of visualization that had come down from the Bible, from the times of the Bible. Um, if you look at the Bible, every single story in the Bible starts with either a dream or a vision or clear audience. Um, and they were what the, and of course all the prophets that were talking, right? So the prophets were doing this, this inner work of dreaming and visualizing and hearing through that, that dreaming part of themselves. And they had what they called uh, the academies of the Bnei Nevi'im, of the sons of the prophets. So I believe, though we have no proof of all of that, but the, you know, the lineage talks about that, that the work comes directly from there. So for centuries and centuries, it was passed on through certain families, but certainly through uh, Colette's family, um, on how you did the imagery, how you developed the dreaming. And so that's what she was teaching, and uh, that's where I got my formal training um, with her, although I had done that since I was a tiny child. Would you say that there are key Kabbalistic teachings that inform or frame this approach to working with imagery? I would say so, yes. And and then what, what are Although, those? You know, now Kabbalah is formalized, you know, around, for example, uh, the Tree of Life. Um, there's certain formal ideas that are developed, but there are lots of different kind of kinds of Kabbalah. I believe that this is the most ancient because it's it's inscribed in our bodies. You know, you can look into your body and you know everything if you if you are um, led that way to really look in. It's going to show you how you're made, how the world is, how the cosmos is. So your images are going to lead you there. So it's a very, it's a very ancient form of, of Kabbalah. Later on, um, there were other systems of Kabbalah that sounds, uh, sounding the name of God and with movements of the body. Um, there were studies of text and the many different uh, levels of the text. So the story level, but you go deeper and deeper into the story until you find them, the hidden message in the text. And that I, I teach also, um, but not in the same way. I teach it through looking at a dream and how you read the different levels or looking at a Bible story and how you read the different levels and then you do the imagery and you enter into the true or the deeper meaning of the text. Um, but our work has always been varied directly um, to work with the image the internal image. So I will never say to a student, this is what you see. 
I will in some cases when it's just the body and we want the body to do something, um, tell exactly what the image should be. But once you start moving up the ladder, let's say you're working on emotional issues, well, let's go up into the attic and and you'll you you'll come to a um uh how do you call that you'll open the drawers of the old uh um how do you call that uh, the drawers of a <laughs> the drawers anyway you'll open the drawer and you'll find the the pictures of your ancestors or what your ancestors left you but I don't tell them what they're going to see. So I, I, I open up a window for them, telling them, you're going to walk through this window. And let's say the window is opening up a drawer in which the ancestors have left what they have bequeathed to you. What do you find? What do you want to keep? What do you want to leave? So they are, there's always this opening that allows them to discover what it is inside of themselves and whether they want it or whether they don't want it. So they're always free. And the more you do this work, the more um, independent and strong people get. Because you're not telling them what to do. It's a bit like yoga, if you want. You know, you go into a posture... That's your window. But what happens inside of your own body, if you're truly looking and if, you know, you're being led to truly look, then it's your own experience. And nobody has the same one. And when we look inside of the, the images of people, it's totally astounding. I mean, that's what people react to a lot in workshops when they're, maybe 30, 40 people there to to hear what other people discover. It's just, it's, uh, it's mind-boggling. It's so different and so uh, powerful. So it's not telling them what to see. It's, I don't ever tell them, um, this is what I see in you. I tell them, close your eyes and take a look. Tell me what you see. Now, in the beginning of our conversation, you used this interesting phrase that I made a note of that I wanted to follow up with you on, which is you talked about how we could go fishing into the dream field with a question. Into the? Into the dream field with a question. Right. right. How, so I could ask any question, and how do I, how do I know that I'm receiving a response or an image from the dream field? You'll always know because it rings differently. The sound of it is different. It's just very simple, very clear, very yes, no, turn right, turn left, um, go to see this one, give this phone call. It's very simple. It's not a complicated mind game. Or an image will pop up showing you where to go. If you follow it, even if it doesn't make sense, you'll see the difference. 
Now, this is one of the the, the works of training somebody in, in the dreaming is that they learn to surrender to the images and to follow them. Now, it may not make any logical sense. I'll tell you a story. It's not to talk about myself, but it's an example. Now, I was supposed to go to Harvard. I had a full scholarship to Harvard. And I kept on hearing, no, you're going to the Middle East. No, you're going to Israel. So I ended up going to Israel, to the horror of my family. And I sat there in a kibbutz, wondering what in the world I was doing there. Until one day, I heard the name of this the woman who was going to be my teacher. And the moment I heard her name, my whole brain exploded with light, and I knew that's why it come, and that's where I had to go. I didn't even know she was a teacher. So I went there, and I found my roots, which was quite astonishing, because at the time I knew nothing about my mother's family roots, which were the same as Colette's. So look at the... I, I had left the state to come to Jerusalem. It was totally irrational. And it led me where I needed to go, where my soul was calling to me to go. So the dreaming is never going to lie to you, and it's always going to show you the way. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be an easy way, but it will show you the way. So to give you an example, um, you know, here's, here's a young woman who makes a choice. She makes the choice of having this baby. The father of the baby comes in and says, you've got to tell her not to, because I don't want this baby. Okay, I say, this is not my job. My job is to open up the inside so that she can see what her soul wants to do. And the soul was very clear, I want this baby. <laughs> she kept the baby, and it's been very hard, but that's what the soul had chosen. So I don't, I don't decide the inside of the dreamer decides, the dreaming decides. It's not logical, but ultimately it takes you where your soul and your heart will sing. In the long run, it will take you where you need to go. Now, Catherine, I want to be very straightforward with you, which is, in my own experience, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about when you talk about how we can turn our gaze inward to this yeah. dreaming experience and go fishing, and we can get answers, and we can also, when you said, you know, imagine yourself in a rose garden, I could see a rose garden. But in my experience, often when you say something to somebody like, imagine yourself in a rose garden, they report back, I don't see anything, nothing. I asked a question, and did I, hear, I didn't hear an answer. I didn't hear anything definitive. And so I'm wondering, is this true for all people, that this imaginal field can be accessed instantaneously in a moment's notice? Yes, it is. But um, they're little tricks to make people see. Many people who will say, well, I don't see anything, they don't see anything because they're frightened or they don't want to feel or they're frightened of what's going to be revealed. 
So, and then the other thing to remember is that when we talk about imagery, we're talking about the five senses. We talk of imagery because the the sight is our most uh, powerful sense. But some people are much more attuned, let's say, to kinesthetic uh, sensations. Others, it's taste. Let's say you're a cook. Well, I'm not going to see images, but I'm going to taste it. So their road, let's say, to their inside dreaming may be the tasting. I remember a friend of mine... um, he was a nutritionist, and this woman walks in, and I was sitting next to my friend, and he says to me, cheese. This woman was eating cheese a lot. So he could smell it. Whereas if somebody walks into my office, I see all the, you know, I see the mice, I see uh, the angry mother, I see a lot of things happening in image. That's my most powerful sensation. But he was a nutritionist, and he could smell cheese. And it was the truth, because he asked her the questions, and she said, yes, she had mainly cheese. <laughs> so it's a field that you can access through any one of your senses. Ultimately, you want all, this, the, all the senses will come together and create a synergy, so you'll have a 3D world inside. So a, a person can, but a person who is afraid of what they're going to be uh, of feeling or of knowing, uh, of knowing themselves, they're going to have a hard time. And somebody who who prefers to be mental, it's much easier to be in the rational world, and who will, you know, have a preconceived idea that that's where they need to be. Um, they'll refuse to see. They won't know that they're refusing, but that they'll have a hard time seeing. And there are little tricks to help them to see. We know that they can see because they have night dreams. So if they have night dreams, it's obvious that they can see. So in terms of these little tricks, you introduced yeah. us to the three, two, one, so that, that yeah. helps us relax and see the big, bright one before we do the exercise itself. Are there other little tricks you can share with us? Well, um, I can give you a little exercise. One of the tricks that I use with people who say that they can't see, say, close your eyes and see a chair. And it's amazing. They'll always be able to describe to you a chair. So from there, I move on. Can you see a throne? Yeah, generally, from the chair, they can move to the throne. Can you sit in it? What's the feeling? And this sounds silly, but it works because you've started from something very graphic and common, and they'll be able to move from there. Okay, now, Catherine, I'd love for you to let our listeners know how you moved from working with imagery in general to applying it specifically to the journey of childbirth? Oh, well, first to tell you, when I was in in Jerusalem studying with Colette, um, I didn't speak the language, 
and the only thing I knew how to do or thought I knew how to do was to teach yoga. So I had groups of students who spoke English and or I managed with my bad Hebrew and I started teaching them yoga but not at all the yoga that is current in most uh, studios. I was teaching them imagery in the body. So again, how do I move the body to do this? When uh, uh, when this, this student of mine who's a doula came up to me and said, can you give a, a class in, uh, um, to uh, birth professionals, I had no idea about anything. I, I still have no idea. I'm not in the birthing rooms. So I'm not doing that work. But they were telling me we need something for uh, to get the, the placenta down very fast, uh, or we need to lower the blood pressure, or we need to um, uh, uh, get the uh, less cords around the neck of the baby. And they would tell me what they needed. Now, I know how the body what the language is that can speak to the body. So I wrote the exercises, and that's how it all happened. It was not that I knew anything about the birthing uh, profession, except giving birth to my son, but um, it was that, be- that I can apply the language in any way that is required. So it can go from the most simple thing like, uh, you know, learning to write to very complex spiritual development because it's, it's a language that can be applied to anything. It's your basic language. It's your primal language. It's a language that babies understand or, or um, animals. So if you want to communicate with an animal, you communicate in images. They understand images. Now, I'm not an animal communicator, but I've done that with a number of animals. I might simply speak to them in images. And they respond in images. Now, Catherine, if we were to take a common problem, it seems like it's become more common in our society, which is difficulties with conception. Women who want to have a baby and go through all kinds of potentially extreme medical measures in order to proceed. How might they, using the approach that you teach, work with imagery? What kinds of suggestions would you have? Well, I mean, there are two chapters in the book about that with very specific exercises on what you need to do to prepare for conception. Now, the the, the work uh, for infertility may be more, uh, let's say, more in-depth. We have many, many more exercises than, than are in the book, but that would require, again, sitting with the person and finding out what is what is in uh, what is blocking it could be an ancestral pattern let's say that uh, 
um, you know, uh, in the ancestral pattern, I'm very connected to my aunt, and my aunt never had children, and so I'll never have children. It's a belief system in the in the in the dream field that is blocking the the process. So we clear that out. It could be many, many other things. It could be a sperm count that is not high enough. We're actually doing a study in Japan just now on the exercise to lift the sperm um, in a hospital in Japan to find out whether the exercise really does um, create more motility of the sperm and more healthiness of the sperm. There's so many things that one could address, but again, it depends entirely on the the person's situation. Now, there's a pretty wild quote from the book Dream Birth that mm-hmm. I wanted to read for you, and it was about yeah. has to do with the experience of actually being in labor and giving birth. And here it is: if you're completely in your dreaming, what seemed like hard labor can become effortless, ecstatic, and orgasmic. And I thought, is that really true? In the midst of hard labor? If you're, and what does it mean to be completely in your dreaming in the midst of hard labor? Well, that's how I experienced it, and that's how many of my students have experienced it. When you're in your dreaming, you don't feel your body the same way. Let's say that I'm at the dentist and he's doing all sorts of things to my mouth, but I'm uh, walking in a meadow where the, the flowers are heavenly, have a heavenly scent. I'm sensing and um, smelling the flowers. I'm not um, focusing on the pain in my mouth. If I focus on the pain in my mouth, it gets much worse. If I If I go into a dreaming state, it's a very different matter. So all the interruption that uh, pregnant women, uh, that laboring women are subjected to uh, are detrimental because it breaks the rhythm, it breaks the fact that they're in their body, they're completely immersed in this monumental internal movement, and if they stay with it, they'll be okay, generally. Generally, I say because all sorts of of shifts can happen in the body, but if you have a dream birth doula there, they'll be helping them on the way. So um, what I mean by the dreaming is that if I am dreaming, I'm not going to be... Um, so directly, so so directly um, concentrated on the pain. So the pain dissolves in the presence, in the presencing of my experience. So I'm totally in my experience, and I can say that from my own uh, labor, I didn't feel it the way that most people talk about it. It was just, you know, I was, it was a great rushing torrent and I was flowing down in the waters of the torrent and, and uh, that's what happened. 
Now, I was interrupted at one point, and that's when the pain got really bad. Mm-hmm. And when I was able to get back into my dreaming, it was much easier. Now, Catherine, before I end this conversation, one thing that I have a lot of curiosity about is to know a bit more about the spiritual teacher, Colette, that you studied with in Jerusalem. Here, yes. uh, one of two women Kabbalistic teachers at the time that were, right. were on your radar. And I guess I, I would love to, if you would, for you to paint a picture of her for me and what your relationship was like with her. Well, I mean, when I first arrived there and I didn't know she was a teacher, she said to me, what do you want? And I said, well, I want you to teach me how images move people. And she said to me, I've waited for you a long time. And so she adopted me as her daughter. Um, She was a very great woman. She was really queenly and totally, totally dedicated so that the house was open from early morning until late at night. She never left her house. She did walk up and down the street, but she never left the area. She was always there. This was her offering to the world, which was that anybody needed her, she was there. And um, she was completely selfless. There was no money involved. Today it's quite impossible to do that, especially in the States, but there it was very different. She did have a husband who was a wonderful, extraordinary man and who had a job, so he took care of of her. But after he left, although there was some money in the background to 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 pay for her needs, um, everybody in the community would come around and bring her gifts and uh, a baked potato in 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 a you know in in a cloth or or would come and help uh, clean the garden or do something for her because she was such a. a a magnet for so many, many people. And they would come and they would present their difficulty or talk about their difficulty, and she would answer them by having them do an exercise. And she would send them home, do this exercise for three days, every hour on the hour, and call me back. So she was an absolute magnet, and so much so that I remember once... uh, a letter arriving that said, Colette, Jerusalem. <laughs> hmm. The letter arrived at her doorstep. Everybody knew her. She was both a grande dame, as we say in France, a, a great lady, and also an extraordinarily giving uh, person. And um, so she was... Uh, she was like the very center, the heart of things for a lot of people. And she used to often sit in the little terrace in her little garden, and you'd go down the, you'd open the blue gate and go down the seven steps, and you'd sit there with her. And a lot of her work was done in public. Now she had her private students in the morning. But the rest of the time, it was all public. So um, 
people would come and ask a question, and she'd give them tea and maybe even feed them. And so it was a really open house. Every Saturday night they had a an open house where they fed 60 people or more, and uh, she would talk or a speaker would talk, and it was the way of, of closing the Shabbat. So um, she was teaching and uh, uh, giving classes and seeing people privately and and really um, affected a great, great many lives. And you have a sense, it seems, that you're clearly carrying on, if you will, her teaching work. Do you also have the sense that the people who study with you or select individuals who study with you are now carrying on this same lineage for future generations? Oh, yes. I'm training a lot of people, actually all over the world, because I travel all over the world teaching. There's about uh, four or five months of the year that I travel. So, yes, they're being trained in different countries. And then I have, because now we're modern, so I have classes on webinar. And so they train all year round. And some of them are really, really magnificent practitioners of the work. So that I hope eventually that it becomes a well-known work because it is so simple and so powerful. And it, it, reveals so much if the person is willing and honest enough to look in. And so they can see and they can better themselves from the images that are theirs that um, they've been able to access. And that's where, when I was talking about fishing, you can really access it by giving this little movement or opening the window or giving the little jolt that will allow them to access what's in their cauldron. And just a final question, Catherine. Do you have a hope or a wish or a dream, if you will, for your new book, Dream Birth, Transforming the Journey of Childbirth Through Imagery? Well, actually, I, I was very, very happy to do the work with all these birth professionals because I realized that the best way to teach the work is to get back to the basics. And the basics are the women and giving birth and their children. And we find a lot of the mothers who've done dream birth will call us up to find out, well, what, well, what do I do with the sibling rivalry? How do I wean my child? What do I do if? So they've learned the language and they're bringing it on there. It's teaching a new generation the language that they've lost, which is, I think, really the primal language that enables us to become free, not to be um, the victim of outside forces or to be simply manipulated by outside forces, but to truly find inside of ourselves the truth and the way to, to meaning, to true meaning inside of ourselves. So I was very happy that um, this can go to the young mothers because then they can also teach their children and use it in their own uh, family life. And <clears throat> I'm hoping that that language will start to spread 
with the book. That's my dream. I've been speaking with Dr. Katherine Shaneberg. She's the author of a new Sounds True book called Dream Birth, Transforming the Journey of Childbirth Through Imagery, a book that has 161 imagery exercises in it. Different jolting experiences taking the dreamer through conception, pregnancy, labor, and bonding. Catherine has also created an audio series on imagery for conception, pregnancy, labor, and bonding. Catherine, it was really wonderful to talk with you and to speak with someone who's so genuinely and purely carrying on the work that you're doing. It's very inspiring to me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Tammy. Thank you. Our engineer today is Aaron Arnold. Our series editor is Jeff Mack. And the music that you're hearing is from Tom Coletti from the album Yoga is Union, available through Sounds True. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.